Welcome to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. I am a little bit late, but I want to say a very happy, happy, happy National Indigenous Peoples Day. I hope you celebrated and recognized this day this past Monday on June 21st in style. I saw some great posts on social media celebrating Indigenous folks who are doing amazing things, and that's exactly what today's episode is about. National Indigenous History Month is coming to a close. Not that it means that our education on Indigenous people's history and issues stops, of course. There's still lots to cover that we on the No Nonsense podcast will do over the coming months. But today, I want to profile some incredible leaders from the Indigenous community that are fighting for justice in different areas, including children and youth rights, healthcare, environmental justice, and equity. We are going to talk about these three people, who all happen to be women. (laughs) It just happened that way. They are all incredible leaders that I've had the pleasure of hearing from in public forums and in conferences, and all are tackling systemic racism against Indigenous peoples in different ways. They are Cindy Blackstock, Autumn Pelletier, and Larissa Crawford. Don't get it twisted, there are so many more people that could have been included, but this episode would go on for days. People like Pam Palmatter, Justice Marie Sinclair, Alanis Obomsawin, Shanice Steele, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Kylie May, Christy Belcourt, Tanya Tagak, Sheila Watt-Cloutier, Jennifer Harper, Josephine Mendamin, Serene Fox, Malika Oweri, and Shannon Kostachin. The list could go on. So let's get started with Cindy Blackstock. Man, I love this woman. She is such a powerhouse. Cindy Blackstock is on the 2021 McLean's Power List, a ranking of 50 influential Canadians, but to me she's number one. She is a longtime champion for the rights of Indigenous children in Canada and is actually currently fighting the federal government in court again, but more on that in a minute. Cindy Blackstock serves as Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society and is a Professor of Social Work at McGill University. She has 25 years of social work experience in child protection and rights of Indigenous children. She's authored over 50 publications, is a public speaker, and a consultant to the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. She does a lot of work with UNICEF and the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues as well. And unsurprisingly, she's received the Order of Canada. Cindy Blackstock is a member of Gixan First Nations of British Columbia. Let's talk about the ongoing legal battle that she's right in the middle of for Indigenous children's rights, which is her passion, as well as working to implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. Indigenous children are overrepresented in the child welfare system. They make up over 50% of kids in care across Canada. Although 7% of children in Canada live in poverty, for Indigenous children, this is 38%. Just last week, on June 14th, Cindy Blackstock went to court again. Here is a little bit of background. All the way back in 2007, Cindy and the Assembly of First Nations filed a Canadian Human Rights Commission complaint alleging that the federal government had discriminated against Indigenous children by providing less funding and poorer services for family and child welfare than it did for non-Indigenous children. 
Well, in 2016, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal agreed and ruled that Canada's treatment of on-reserve and Yukon-based First Nations kids and families was a prima facie case of discrimination. This was a landmark victory for Indigenous kids and their families. The federal government was ordered to immediately end their discriminatory practices, recognize some 165,000 First Nations children's rights to access federal support on par with non-Indigenous kids, and compensate children who have been shortchanged by a two-tier system. This compensation was for $40,000 to each child who was taken away from their families for reasons other than abuse, or had medical treatment denied or delayed by the government. The federal government is required to fully live up to the Child First Jordan's principle, which is a policy that states that the government should pay the medical bills of any First Nations child on or off reserve first, and then argue about jurisdictional processes later. Jordan's principle was named in memory of Jordan River Anderson. He was a five-year-old boy from Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba. He was born with a number of complex medical needs, and Jordan spent more than two years unnecessarily in hospitals waiting to leave, while the province of Manitoba and the federal government argued over who should be paying for his home care. Care that could have been paid for immediately had Jordan not been First Nations. Jordan unfortunately died in hospital at the age of five, never having spent a day in a family home. I heard Cindy speak at an event years ago about Jordan's principle, and it was the first time that I learned about this systemic barrier that Indigenous kids have to fight to get timely medical care covered by the government. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The fact that the government had a say as to whether Indigenous kids could access certain benefits is horrendous. Unfortunately, the federal government has failed to comply to the orders of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. The federal government argues that systemic discrimination should not be addressed with individual compensation. They countered that they have already spent $700 million since the 2016 ruling to ensure, in quotes, all First Nations children can access the products, services, and supports that they need when they need them. So, they're back in court. Cindy Blackstock's litigation against Canada has secured hundreds of thousands of services for First Nations youth, but she isn't done fighting, despite the personal costs. In 2010, she found out that the federal government was surveilling her. This is a quote from her. During the history of the actual hearing of the case, Canada did everything it possibly could to not have the facts presented to the Canadian public or to the courts. They wanted to throw it out on technical issues. And when that didn't work, they tried to discredit me by doing this kind of surveillance activity. But unfortunately for them, I live a pretty boring life. (laughs) Cindy has shared that although today's federal liberals are big on symbolism, their actions don't live up to the rhetoric on reconciliation. And by continuing to fight the rights of Indigenous children, children mind you, this is all more evident. This case started in 2007. It's 2021, in case you are also losing track of time with the pandemic. But that is almost 15 years of fighting on this one issue. Our 
our next incredible change maker that we're going to talk about is named Autumn Peltier. Peltier is an Anishinaabe water rights advocate, an Anishinaabeg Nation Chief Water Commissioner, a globally recognized youth environmental activist, and she's only 20 years old. <laughs> she was born on September 27, 2004, in Wikwamekong unceded territory in Manitoulin Island in Ontario. She was appointed a Chief Water Commissioner by the Anishinaabeg Nation in 2019. At eight years old, Peltier attended a ceremony at Serpent River First Nations in Ontario with her mother, which inspired her future work as a water protector. During that visit, she saw signs that warned of toxic drinking water and learned that contaminated water on reserves in Canada has been an ongoing problem for many reasons, including pollution and pipeline leaks. In a 2019 Women of Influence interview, Autumn recalled this experience and how it affected her. In quotes, My mom explained to me that the community had been on a boiled water advisory for over 10 years. I was shocked. Autumn learned about the importance of clean water and the relationship to land from her mother and great-aunt, Josephine Mendamin. Josephine Mendamin was known as the Water Walker because of her years as a water rights activist and the Anishinaabeg Nation Chief Water Commissioner until her death in 2019. From 2003 to 2017, Mendamin organized and led a series of water walks around the Great Lakes and surrounding waters to raise awareness. During her final water walk in 2017, Mendamin trekked from Spirit Mountain in Duluth, Minnesota, all the way to Matin, Quebec, a distance measuring more than 8,000 kilometers. In an interview, Autumn shares, My aunt and my mom have been teaching me about the importance of clean drinking water and how to protect the environment since I was a little girl. I advocate for water because we all came from water, and water is literally the only reason we are here today and living on this earth. Autumn Peltier has fought for water rights in Canada and around the world. In 2016, at the winter meeting of the Assembly of First Nations, at only 12 years old, she criticized the Trudeau government's clean water policies. In a face-to-face -face meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, she said, I am very unhappy with the choices that you've made. Trudeau replied, I understand that. I will protect the water. This meeting gained a lot of media attention nationally and internationally, as you can imagine. After the passing of her great aunt, Josephine Mendamin, Autumn Peltier was appointed Chief Water Commissioner. Anishinaabeg Nation Grand Council Chief Glenn Hare admitted that it was a very easy choice because of her extensive knowledge about the water and her activism. Chief Glenn Hare said she has been bringing global attention to the water issues in our country for a few years now. And this attention is badly needed. After five years, the Liberal government announced in early December that it would not be able to fulfill its commitment to end all long-term water advisories on reserves by its date of March 2021. However, there has been some progress. 97 advisories have been lifted since November 2015. Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller announced that the federal government would pledge an additional $1.5 billion to finish the work of ending all long-term water advisories on First Nations communities when he announced that the government would not be able to meet its deadline. Some communities in Northern Ontario have been under long-term advisories for over 25 years. 
For example, the Neskantaga First Nations, located at about 450 kilometers northeast of Thunder Bay, has been under a boil water advisory since 1995. Over 250 community members were recently evacuated to Thunder Bay after a water emergency. And this is all the more stark because clean water especially is needed in the fight against COVID-19. It is more critical than ever. Outbreaks have especially been severe in remote First Nations communities due to a lack of resources, including water. Autumn has been quoted as saying, Water is a basic human right and nobody should have to beg for it. This is wrong, and it comes to the point where I think it comes down to racism. Why is it that First Nations people have to wait so long for something so simple? Has it not been long enough? Autumn Peltier is only 20 years old and has already been recognized for her activism. 2019, McLean Magazine's named Autumn one of Canada's 20 people to watch in 2020. She's been nominated for the International Children's Peace Prize in 2017, 18, and 19. She was named a science defender by the Union of Concerned Scientists in 2019. She was honored by the Ontario Lieutenant Governor with the Sovereign's Medal for volunteering for her advocacy and conservation, and she's been honored as an Ontario junior citizen. On her future plans, she shared that she will continue to build her platform and work with Indigenous leaders and youth to address systemic racism at the center of the water issue. She's currently attending high school, but is looking forward towards university. She's active on social media. Go follow her. We're going to link all of her socials in the show notes. And she is an activist on the rise. I am so inspired by her work and her voice, and I can't wait to see what she does next. Last, but certainly not least, is Afro-Indigenous activist Larissa Crawford. She is a published Indigenous and anti-racism researcher. She's an award-winning ribbon skirt artist, a restorative circle keeper of Métis and Jamaican ancestry, and a proud mother. Larissa Crawford is currently based on Treaty 7 land, the traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsina Nation, and the Stony Nakoda Nations, as well as the Métis Nation homeland, Region 3. She is passionate about understanding the healing power of knowing our history, of knowing the actions and inactions of our ancestors, and understanding the history of racism, the history of colonialism, and the history of capitalism. Larissa is a Cohort X Climate Justice Fellow, an Action Canada Fellow, and a 2019 Corporate Knights Top 30 Under 30 in Sustainability. That is a mouthful. She has done so much. She specializes in race-based data collection, indigenous and anti-racism research, accessibility, restorative circle keeping, restorative practices, and conflict resolution, as well as climate justice and public policy. She is a young entrepreneur changing the nature of business. Larissa founded an organization called Future Ancestors Services that was launched in April 2020. Future Ancestor Services is an Indigenous and Black-owned, youth-led professional service social enterprise. It advances climate justice and systemic barrier removal with the lens of restorative anti-racism and ancestral accountability. Future Ancestor Services has mobilized over $20,000 in donations for anti-racist and climate justice initiatives. 
we're going to link the organization. So if this is something that your organization could use in terms of improving an equity and diversity lens from a decolonized standpoint, please check out Future Ancestors Services. Larissa was raised by a Métis mother growing up on Indigenous land surrounded by community and elders. So from a very early age, she had an awareness of how residential schools, genocide, and racism impacted and continue to impact Indigenous people. However, she didn't grow up around Black communities. She's quoted as saying, I had only really been taught to think of intergenerational trauma in terms of my indigeneity. Having had virtually no early immersion in Black communities, no access to Black elders or Jamaican culture, and little formal education on the pervasiveness of slavery practices, I didn't have the capacity to afford the same understanding, love, and forgiveness to those whom I owe my Blackness to. She had a strained relationship with her father, the only Black role model in her formative years, and this contributed to a lack of understanding and appreciating her Black roots. But through research into slavery and her Jamaican heritage, she began to apply the knowledge and understanding of intergenerational pain to her father's lineage, which she had already been doing on her mother's side. She shared in interviews that she appreciates the healing qualities of understanding the deeper systemic elements of our past and our present, because it allows for critical reflection on your journey. And this reflection has shaped her reality to help her understand that what she has experienced is not merely a single individual incident, but is rooted in a systemic form of racism. There you have it. Three incredible Indigenous folks doing important work that is literally having impact as we speak. Like I said at the beginning, this list is far from full. There are so many incredible Indigenous folks in both anti-racism and changemaker roles, but these three are particularly close to my heart. I am going to link all of the social media handles, organizations, and work in the show notes. Please go take a look and support them however you can. This Indigenous History Month and all year round. As the month closes out, I hope you've used the time to learn more about our country's history with colonization and the ongoing impacts that it's having on Indigenous communities. I couldn't dive into all of the topics this month that are really important, but I will continue to share more. There's so much more work to be done alongside Indigenous peoples. Today's episode was researched by Beverly Osuzua. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. I produced and I am your host, Nuri Yunus. Thank you for joining us today in solidarity. We'll see you next week. Bye. We hope you're enjoying these episodes with us. It is really important that we're getting factual, historical, contextually relevant information out there into the universe. We are doing this with the support of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Thank you. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please make sure to write us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps us to get more visibility so that we can reach more people, reach more Canadians, and get knowledge out into the universe. So make sure to write a review wherever you get your podcasts. 